Now, if you're like me, you think product management's a pretty stressful job. What of all that context switching and zooming in and out? But my guest tonight might have had one that was even harder. Speaking of hard jobs, if you're looking for support in yours and seeking mentorship, why not check out My Mental Path, a free mentorship platform where product managers and product leaders can connect with each other and get the support they need to grow in their careers. You can head over to mymentorpath.com to find out more about the benefits of mentoring to both sides of the relationship and to sign up to be a mentor, a mentee, or both. Why not check out the show notes for more details? All right, back to the episode and a wide-ranging discussion about transferring from high-frequency trading to product leadership, how the old life informed the new, some of the internal and external challenges you can have in product leadership, and how, if you give me a place to stand and a long enough lever, you might even be able to move the CEO. For all this and much more, stick with us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Pooja Parthasarathy. Pooja's a product leader who says all the jobs she's ever had have been awesome, though she used to work at a hedge fund, so I'm already suspicious. Pooja says she knows more Bollywood gossip than anyone can reasonably expect and used to be able to deadlift one and a half times her own body weight. But these days she's putting her back into it and trying to lift up product managers and inspire them to follow her non-traditional route into product leadership. It says we all need a little resilience, but also humility to get ahead. Hi Pooja, how are you tonight? I'm well, Jason. How are you? Thank you for having me. No problem. It's good to have you here. And it's been a while getting this one yes. scheduled in and we've had a few full starts. So I'm hoping we make it through to the end. And uh, We will. Yeah. We will. We will. By hook or by crook, we will. By hook or by crook. We're going to get through it together. But before we get through it together, first things first, you are the head of product at Abstract Ops. So mm-hmm. what problem do Abstract Ops solve for the world? Yeah. So Hi, everyone. I'm, I'm Pooja. I'm head of product at a very early stage startup called Abstract Ops. We are a SaaS company that's focused on helping distributed teams get 360 visibility into their entire team, hire compliantly across the 50 states, and compensate fairly. I've been in this role for a little over a year and a half at this point. And prior to this, I was in a few different product roles at another SaaS startup here in Chicago called Narrative Science, which, you know, got acquired by Salesforce. So happy outcomes for all involved. (laughs) And then before that, you know, this is why Jason, you and I started chatting initially. You know, I came into product from a pretty atypical background. So I started my career as a quant trader at a hedge fund here where, gosh, I was trading equity futures, bond futures, commodity futures, some stocks. And I did that for a few years. And this was in the heyday of algorithmic trading. I transitioned from that into more traditional asset management, where I was now doing research and portfolio management on G10 debt and inflation-linked debt, which I knew nothing about before I I got into that job. (laughs) And actually made the leap into PM through business school. And you know, five years on, I haven't looked back since and I think product's wonderful because I'm still doing it and excited to talk more about it. <laughs> well, no, absolutely. We will definitely be talking about it. I think before we go into the hedge fund side of things, though, I'm curious because you say that Abstract Ops is a fairly early stage company, Yep. which kind of implies that it's either pretty small or it's kind of so unicorn that it's already massive. But let's assume that it's reasonably small. Yep. But then if you're looking at your responsibilities, you're leading product, you're leading design, you're leading product operations. And yep. 
that last part is really interesting because product operations is something which I'm sure you're aware has somewhat of a woolly definition across various different types of company. And some people are sitting there saying, ah, well, we don't, you don't need product operations. You don't need process people. You just need everyone to be empowered and rowing in the same direction. So I guess at the size of company that you're at, at Abstract Ops, mm-hmm. how does product ops help you and your team or your teams make products? Yeah. That's a great question. And we've also sort of gone through that journey of like, what does product ops actually do? Do we actually need this role right now? And, you know, uh, shout out to John, who's who's my one of my favorite people, who's our product ops guy. Oh, I hope he's listening. I hope he's listening. I hope so too. <laughs> but product ops, right? I view the, the role of product ops, and I know it looks different at different companies, similar to actually how product looks different at different companies. I view the role of product ops effectively as so ultimately, right, in support of how do we make well-informed product decisions and activate our user base using data and using the right tools. So look, I mean, at our stage, you know, there's not a lot of data. Um, there's, <laughs> there, there's a few different tools, right? But I think what's been really helpful for us is Honestly, building like a data-focused and a research-focused mindset more than anything else. I think that's the discipline that having product ops brings inherently is, you know, we all know we're flying by the seat of our pants, but, you know, (laughs) so much of early stage is having strong hypotheses, testing them, putting them out there, iterating really quickly on them, right? And then closing the loop, closing the loop, closing the loop. I think This is something that I have found is really important to do, especially in early stage, because I think it's really tempting to just go down and do a little rabbit hole and just build, 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 right? Without actually pressure testing your assumptions, like pressure testing what you're actually seeing in market. And I think the discipline of saying, okay, we are going to take a hypothesis-driven approach to saying, what problem are we trying to solve over what time frame? What does success look like? What are the different levers that we have to solve this problem? What are the most high leverage levers, right? And importantly, once we put something out there, let's analyze, let's figure out what success actually our success or failure, feed that all back into the machine. And then that's how you're basically iterating through early stage product. Oh, there you go. So everyone else should get product ops teams as soon as possible to help them do the same. I completely think so, yes. <laughs> but you've not always been a product manager, as you just said, and You've talked a little bit about the hedge funds and the financial services adventures that you had. And I guess I, when I think of hedge funds and algorithmic trading, as you called out as well, it starts to feel like a very stressful world, like a very high octane, high pressure, like in all the movies where everyone's always, you know, up all night and making billion dollar decisions all the time and everyone's shouting at each other. And I don't know if that's 100% true or if it's all like a little bit more sedate, but from your perspective and from your experience there was it all high octane high power everyone's shouting each other stuff or was it somewhere a little bit less than that it was mostly that the decisions <laughs> i would say weren't billion dollar decisions for sure because it was one of a it was a smaller fund but yeah i mean i will i will always remember it's my first job i was 21 years old you know i would get into work at like 6 a.m in the morning and you know it was pitch dark and we kept the rooms intentionally pitch dark right because <laughs> Everyone had like a ton of different computer screens and monitors. And 
Yeah. You know, in many ways, right, as a trader, your status was measured by how many monitors you had in front of you. Like some of our <laughs> our best traders had like eight or ten. And so I found myself aspiring. I was like, oh, how, how can I get an extra monitor? Like, I feel like that makes me look really cool, right? But <laughs> but no, so so yes to the high octane, yes to the high stress. I mean, look, it was, you know, so much of trading, right? Whether it's quant trading, I think, I think trading in general is is about thinking on your feet, right? It's about, and specifically like thinking on your feet in very volatile, uncertain environments. So picture this, right? So the room is pitch dark. It's like 7 a.m. Central Time. Everyone's sort of, you know, on the edge of their seats, right? Waiting for the CPI number or the GDP number or the jobless claims number. My boss is in one corner of the room, sort of, you know, glued to his screen because he's the one who shouts out the number, right? So seven on the dot, you hear seven O above expectations, right? And then it's pin drop silence. All you hear is just clicking, 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 because everyone's trying to trade, right? And success in that environment is survival and it's adapting, right? It's, you, I mean, of course, the market always has expectations going into any economic number, but at the end of the day, right, their expectations at best and Market moving numbers, especially like every, you'll just see like charts will just spike up like this or spike down like this, right? And so it was an incredible experience, right? And I think what that really taught me, I think so two things. One, thinking on your feet in that environment and thinking three steps ahead, right? Because you're not just making one trade. You're trying to think about what trades are other people going to put on and how do I get ahead of that? And you're doing that minute by minute, every single day, day after day. and that's just you're living by your wits to, to a large extent. And now granted, we built like algo models and things like that as well, right? But it was still a core component of that. And so when I equate that or sort of bring that back to early stage PM, Jason, like as I'm sure your PM listeners will will already recognize, right? Like thinking on your feet, check, volatile, uncertain, check, adaptation, survival, check, right? Because early stage PM is literally just about survival. Until you get to product market fit, if, right, a big if you get to product market fit. <laughs> so that was sort of a big one for me. And I think your, your second, right, around everyone yelling at each other, like, yes, you know, so <sighs> like I said, I was 21, everyone was a lot older than I was, and everyone yelled at each other in, in didn't mince any words, shall we say, right? So talk about building or needing to build a very thick skin very early in my career. And not taking anything to heart or not taking anything more seriously than I should. And I think those two things have both, you know, both sort of the thick skin and, and, and thriving in that environment in many ways, right? I think set me up for success for eventually getting into early stage product. Yeah, that's obviously a really interesting point, this whole idea that you can transfer some of that stuff over. But also it kind of feels like, you know, product managers often, they'll be sitting there saying how, and I say this a lot as well, like, saying how product management is such a hard job because all the context switching and the different Zoom levels that you have to operate at and all of the different cats that you have to herd sometimes. But it kind of feels like moving into product management for you was a bit of a bit of a break. Is that is that fair <laughs> to say? Or or is it just differently hard? I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> product is really hard. I mean I'm doing it, like I said, I'm still doing it because I love it, but it's still really hard. I will say though, I think I'm I'm really grateful, right? So, you know, I don't look and sound like many, most heads of products, shall we say, but, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that I've had experiences that I've had in the past that I think have 
brought a level of perspective and I think just well-roundedness to how I approach product in my role. And honestly, I think have stood me in, in really great stead in getting to a head of product role as quickly as I have. Yeah, and I think that roundedness is something that we'll probably come back to in a minute as well, because I think that it's really, really important. We see it a lot out there. A lot of people talking about it. I've talked about it. I've had people on the podcast talking about it, this idea that just getting the same old dudes in from Stanford computer science degree people isn't necessarily the best way to set up for success. You know, the the world's growing and changing all the time, and we need to reflect that, and we need to get people in that can understand that. But I guess another interesting point there, though, is that it kind of feels like if we even just exclude your own personal background and just concentrate on the work background, the specifics of like the environments you're working, they they feel like so far away from the kind of empowered cross-functional teams, you know, bottom-up innovation. It kind of feels almost like you've flipped that on its head by coming into product. Is that something then that meant that you had to really learn a load of new things to thrive? I mean, you, you talked obviously a lot about how that's helped you, but did it hinder you in any way coming from that kind of environment? That's a good question. Did it hinder me? I mean, I certainly had bouts of imposter syndrome. And I think, you know, everybody does in yeah. in some shape or form. Because I wasn't the the Stanford CS grad, right? And I worked with a few of them and <laughs> oh, <bad laughs> they're luck. great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I learned a lot from them, right? So I think that's probably the main one, Jason, but you know, I'll say I'll say maybe a couple of things here. One is this this I was telling you about the thick skin that I built, right, as a consequence of having worked in trading. And one of the benefits of that, right, and I think that's again really stood me in good stead is at many points along the way I've had many people tell me I couldn't or shouldn't do certain things, again, as I think many of us have. And I have over time developed the ability to say I I I understand but I'm going to do it anyway, right? And <laughs> that's, I think that's helped me a ton. And I think this, the second thing I'll say, right, is having like zigzag between a few different types of roles. And interestingly, Abstract Ops is actually the only role that I've had where I've brought relevant experience into the role on day one. I still didn't have the domain expertise because I was getting into brand new domain people ops. But having zigzag, right, between whether it's trading, investment management, early stage product, well, Narrative science was sort of more, I would say, growth stage and um, like super early stage, right? I think that taught me two things or maybe sort of helped me bring two things to my work and to my craft as a product person. So one is a love of and almost an optimization for curiosity and learning, right? I've spent my entire career so far just going after opportunities where I felt like I could maximize on both those dimensions. And then the second is just mandatory first principles thinking, because guess what? I had no idea what I was getting myself into pretty much every single time. And so, you know, the the ability to ask really basic questions and the muscle that I consequently built, right, to continue doing that just meant I never had the baggage that I think more experienced people did, because it's just like, well, if I ask a basic question, well, people think I'm stupid. And it's like, well, for me, that was just, well, I had to do that to kind of get up, up, up to speed to, uh, at the job, right? And so if anything, I think actually both those things, like I said, have stood me in in, in, in incredibly good stead. And look, like as an exec, I think it, it's particularly important because modeling those behaviors, right? So I'll tell you, like as a, as a head of product, to me, building a culture that is focused on that curiosity, that hunger for learning, 
the willingness, right, to ask really basic questions is really, really important. And secondly, right, I think that's the culture we've developed on the exec team at large. And the reason that's so important, aside from the obvious, right, because early stage product is all about just asking really basic questions, again, hypothesis and validating. It acts as a good example for younger team members as well, because guess what, right? If they see an exec asking a really, you know, okay, I know I'm oversimplifying, but just so we're all on the same page, right? We're talking about X, Y, Z, right? That goes a really long way in like empowering those people to ask similar questions, which I think, again, lends itself to a really strong company culture as well. Now, I agree with that. And I think it's a fantastic thing to do, not just with asking basic questions, but just across the board, like modeling behaviors that you want the rest of your team to exhibit as well. Like it's easier to get people to do that. Even things like taking holiday and stuff, if you're going to do it yourself rather than just having people just thinking, oh God, the boss is still at work. So I have to still be at work, that sort of thing. Yeah. But I'm going to say that there are certainly points in my career where I felt that I couldn't be vulnerable or say that I didn't know because everything was just this big charade and everyone was it's almost like everyone's posturing like everyone wants to be the rooster yeah aside from the trading side which I assume maybe sometimes you had to kind of puff your chest out a bit but are there times in your product career where you've maybe been unable to do that and have been kind of looked at especially as you've been kind of progressing through into leadership as well where you felt maybe that having that openness and the honesty to ask questions and ask for things that you didn't know about that that's actually harmed your career or or have you always been pretty lucky i think i've been lucky but then that's just how i think about things in general right (laughs) it's true i mean look I'll, i'll be the first person to say jason that like i've for sure had more access and and more opportunities than a lot of other people but you know by virtue of again having made a few different career changes at this point and having to learn and again, wanting to learn right from the ground up every time. I, yeah, I actually, I, I think I've been really lucky and, and I've worked with really great people. I've lucked out in, in terms of the bosses I've had, the mentors I've had, you know, the companies I've worked at where I've always had one or more people who I've looked up to, who have, you know, guided me along my way. And I'm so grateful for that. Because to me, like when I think about the importance of, of mentorship, right? And again, this is a whole other conversation. So I'll sort of take a slight detour. <laughs> i go for it. It gives me a chance to pimp mentoring as well. So that's cool. The ability to take... So one, I think it's important to have many mentors, right? I think a lot of sort of younger folks generally think, I need to find this one mentor and this person's going to be sort of the be all end all and open all these doors for me. And that's not how it works, right? Because everyone's busy, right? Yep. But I think if you think about mentorship and mentoring as there's a lot of different people who maybe you want to embody different aspects of them, right? Different people are really good at different things. And if you think of them almost like a collection of people you look up to whose traits and attributes you want to model, I think that's that's an important and a healthy way to look at mentorship that doesn't sort of put too much pressure both on yourself or on the person that you're asking for advice. I've been, like I said, I've been so fortunate to work with incredible people where I've learned one, you know, one of the things again, as a, since this is a slight detour, one of the things that one of my mentors said to me that always stuck with me and drives me every day is at the end of the day, if you can look yourself in the mirror 
and look yourself in the eye and feel good about the decisions you've made that day and the person you've been that day, that is success, right? And thinking about the world that way, it's just, it's, it, it's, it's so helpful, right? And that's something I'm trying to teach my kid too now, but yeah. So yeah, so I'll, I'll close out sort of the, your question by saying, yes, I've been very lucky. I've had phenomenal mentors. I think I would, for the younger folks listening to this, I would encourage you, go look for people where there are certain things you want to embody, model, um, that maybe resonate with you, right? Maybe because they, they just have something in common with your background. And then the last thing, please, please, please make it easy for someone to say yes, right? Like when you're asking somebody for their time, when you're asking somebody for anything, just do your homework, do your research, make it really easy for them to say yes. And guess what? They're probably going to say yes. So that's end of detour. No, it's a good detour. And I'm going to try very hard not to do any kind of advertising or calling out for my own mentoring initiative. Maybe I'll put that in the intro, but I just have to add or reassure people that that was not a paid advertisement for mentorship. (laughs) Right. Bear with me for 10 seconds. It would be remiss of me right now not to call out my mentor path, a new free mentoring platform where you can get the support you need in your career. So check out the show notes or head over to mymentorpath.com where you can sign up to be a mentor, a mentee, or both. Right, back to the interview. But obviously, you've moved into leadership as you've talked about along the way. You've, you've moved into that head of product role. You're working on the leadership team in the company. I'm not sure if this is the first leadership role you've had here or if you kind of had that in previous companies as well. But mm-hmm. one of the things that you talked about before this was how we, or indeed you, can turn our perceived disadvantages into advantages in a head of product or a chief product officer role. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about perceived disadvantages, I mean, you've talked a bit already about your kind of non-traditional routine mm-hmm. into product and obviously into product leadership. But are you talking about also the imposter syndrome that you've also touched on and the internal disadvantages or perceived disadvantages? Or are you talking also about external perceptions and maybe Hmm. external disadvantages that have been kind of almost reflected onto you by people that you've worked with? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I'd say a little bit of both, right? Yeah. And here's how. So I'll take from from the external aspect or external side of things. So as you know, I am nine months pregnant with my second, and yep, we're, <laughs> we're, we're all excited. Yes, we're we're getting this recorded right in time. <laughs> I have a two and a half year old, and you know, I'm I work at a super early stage startup. So put those things together, and life was just utter, utter, utter chaos, <laughs> right? And I'll tell you, right, this is this is my second, but like the first time, you know, I got I got pregnant, I really had a hard time with that, right? And this is an interesting mix of both, I think, external and internal perception. So as I've said, right, I've been fortunate enough to work with incredible people where that was never held against me in any way. And if anything, you know, I was able to, I think it turned into an asset in many ways, which I can, which I can speak to in a second. And the unfortunate reality, right, is that's not the case for a lot of women out there. Like, it is really hard, like continuing your career when you become a mother and what I'm saying sort of doesn't mitigate that in any way, but you know, internally, sort of the narrative that I had going on was I had spent my entire twenties just working, right? Focused on my career. That's all I ever did. And again, probably like a lot of your listeners, Jason, it's like you identify yourself with your work and with your career, right? And going from that to to now suddenly like 
the level of unpredictability, not being able to plan anything, and very simply, right? Like you're, you can't spend all your time thinking about work anymore because you've got a small human to take care of. That was really hard for me. That was extremely hard for me. And I was convinced that my career would face a setback by virtue of me, you know, becoming a parent and a mother specifically. I felt guilty all the time for not working as much as I used to previously. And I was very, very hard on myself thinking, I need to be better than this. Like I, I know I'm, I'm not, I feel like shit right now, but I still need to power through this and I need to work as hard as I used yeah. to, right? So that's a lot of the internal narrative that I had the first time I, I had my, my kid, my daughter. And it's, I feel sort of bad even thinking about those days, right? And so now when I talk to, you know, again, younger women who are in that stage of their careers and their lives, I tell them like, be kinder to yourself. You know, it, what you're doing is really hard and it's important that you recognize how, how hard this is and how hard you're working. So, so I think that's sort of the internal manifestation of it, Jason. I think externally, like I said, I felt like the people treated me differently, but that actually wasn't really the case. I was working with just really great people. And I think the, the last thing I'll say on this thread for now, right, is so much about this, to your point around turning perceived disadvantages into advantages, so much of this is about the stories we tell ourselves, right? And the stories we tell ourselves end up being the stories we tell other people. And it's so important to be, when I, when I, you know, when I say be kind to yourself, it's be kind to yourself, even with the stories you tell yourself, because if you're not, right, that's the story you're going to tell somebody else. And don't do that, right? Be your champion. You need to be your champion. You cannot expect other people to be your champion. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. The whole idea that you've got to be, yeah, like you say, you've got to be your own champion. You've you've got to advocate for yourself because everyone else is already thinking about all their own problems. And earlier in my career, I would sit there and think, well, what do you mean people aren't thinking about me as much as I think that they're thinking about me? But actually, yeah, yeah like you say, it's yeah, everyone's got their own stuff to deal with. But it feels that you've through a combination of support and maybe good company choices have got through that. But do you feel that in doing that, aside from obviously the stuff that you've already talked about, like how working in trading has obviously shaped your approach to work, do you feel that having come through that and gone through presumably some level of doubt about, as you say, whether you could even get this done, do you think that that's really informed how you approach problems at work or also how you deal with your team at work? Yeah. Has that really informed your approach as well? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And let's say it's it has in in a few different ways, right? One, so let let's say three three ways, right? Three key ways. One is I'm very comfortable not having answers. I'm very comfortable not knowing We're in a room full of people because I've been in so many situations where I haven't, right? And so <laughs> And and the reason that's important, right, as a as a product person, and I tell my team this all the time, I view the job of product as an investor in good ideas, right? And that's a lot of the, yep. the thinking that I bring from my from my roots, if you will. But PM's job is not to have all the answers, it's not to have the ideas, it's to encourage people around you to bring those ideas to the table. And your job, right, as the investor is to say, okay. Here again, here's what success looks like. Here's here's what here's where we're trying to go. And here are ideas that I think will sort of help us get there and fit that bill, right? And so what that frees you up to do, right, is not feel like you need to have the answers and 
it frees you up to play the role of asking questions. So one of one of my other favorite ways to describe the product job, and especially like the head of product job, is the Socratic policeman, if you will, <laughs> right? Which is asking a lot of just a lot of pointed questions. It's policing different different conversations. But I think that's sort of one thing that that I brought with me into this role. The second is I love hiring people and I love talking to people from non-traditional backgrounds, right? Because there's such a depth of knowledge, I think there's such a breadth, I would say, of experience that they bring to the table, right? Because again, tying it back sort of really tactically, when you're building a product for a user or a set of users, your users are people, right? They all have lives, they all have jobs, they all have worries and concerns. And having a team that comes from different backgrounds helps you solve for a pretty, you know, let's say, varied user base and helps, you know, you put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's doesn't, again, not doesn't look like you, doesn't sound like you. And I think that's, that's so critical to building great product is, you know, TLDR user empathy. But I think the way <laughs> you build that, right, is by having those different experiences, having a well-rounded team that's able to embody that. The third thing I'll say, right, is Something that is really important to me that, again, this will be a slight detour, so bear with me, that I also, <laughs> you know, prize and prioritize in product and company culture is grit and, and the growth mindset. So slight detour, two books that I cannot recommend enough. One is called The Growth Mindset. It's by a psychologist called Carol Dweck. You read it, Jason? Yep. So one, and then two is Grit by another psychologist at Penn, I think, Angela Duckworth. It's called Grit. Have you read that one? Yes, I have. Yep. So you, you know what I'm talking about, right? But I think for your listeners, if I sort of really had to summarize the, the premise of both, the growth mindset book, so Carol Dweck talks about this idea of like the growth versus a fixed mindset, right? Yep. The fixed mindset is somebody who prizes and and identifies with innate traits and innate capabilities. And that's just who they are, right? I am so-and-so, I am smart, I am X, I am Y, I am Z. That is who I am. The growth mindset or somebody with a growth mindset is somebody who approaches the world with a, I, I can learn anything, right? And I'm capable of learning anything. The difference between those two, right, is if you're somebody, let's say if you have that fixed mindset, and especially if you pride yourself on being the smart person in the room, you are more likely to put yourself in situations that will reinforce that smartness and make you reaffirm, right, the fact that you are smart. And again, consequently, run away from situations that make you feel like you're not. And so guess what? You're probably going to be in stasis somewhere or the other because you're always looking for affirmation on how smart you are. In contrast with the growth mindset, which, you know, is all about, I think as Satya Nadella puts it sort of really nicely, just like being a learn-it-all, right? The learn-it-all mindset. <laughs> yep. Now, there's, there's limitations to that too, right? Like, doesn't matter how, how hungry you are and how willing you are to learn. Like, could I be an astronaut today? Like, probably not, right? There's got to be reasonable <laughs> there. But I think that that's sort of a, I, I'm open to learning and I'm curious about the world mindset. So when you when you combine that right with Angela Duckworth's work, which is around grit, the premise of her work again is is when you incentivize or when you praise or when you grow or yeah, let's say incentivize right when you incentivize qualities of 
smartness, of talent, of genius, or let's say if you hire, if you solve for that when you're hiring, right? So a classic example of that is looking at a resume and saying, okay, this person has been to the best schools, they have the best grades. And so I know they're smart, I'm going to hire them, right? Versus solving for grit and solving for hard work and solving for the person, again, who looks maybe a little bit like the underdog, right? But has persisted, persisted, persisted to get to where they are. That person is much more likely to be successful in their, in their personal life and their career than the, you know, the Stanford CS grad, for instance. Vast generalization, right? There are lots of <laughs> very successful Stanford CS grads out there. Yeah, we should stop picking on them, I guess. But <laughs> Yes, we, we love you. You know that. <laughs> right? But so if you put those two things together, Jason, so you, if you have you know, uh, somebody who is curious and wants to learn and is willing to work really hard to get there, that is magic. That's magic, right? And like, that's the person you want to hire. That's the team you want to build. That's the product person you want to be. And if you don't have those people in early stage companies, I, honestly, I would say at companies any any stage, right? But of course, things change as, as you grow more mature. I would say if you don't have those traits early stage, especially as a product person, you're just not going to get anywhere because of all the other things we talked about around flying by seat of pants, hypothesis driven, no data, volatile, uncertain. The best thing you can do is be curious and just work your butt off to figure out what you need to do. Well, there you go. I'm getting the feeling that Rocky Balboa would make a fantastic product manager. Yes, yes, actually, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes, I agree with that. Okay, so when we originally caught up a little while back, talking about things that maybe we can do to get ahead in our careers, one of the things that you talked about is how to maintain a good relationship with the CEO, mm -hmm. but also how to create leverage. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not unknown for product leaders to clash with visionary CEOs that still want to kind of drive everything from the top. But what do you mean specifically by creating leverage with CEOs? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. So let me answer, let me actually just quickly touch on what I think of as leverage, right? And yes. I'll mention another one of my favorite books that I'm sure you've read, Jason, and I have everyone on my team read, uh, High Output Management by Andy Grove. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. So again, for, for folks who haven't read it, the, the gist of that book is, you know, Andy Grove talks about sort of the pure people manager, right? And the idea of leverage coming from your team and your time specifically. And as product managers, like until we sort of get further, we're not managing people, but we're, we're managing products and, and stakeholders and all of that good stuff, right? So this idea of leverage is around what leverage, I think, leverage and prioritization sort of go hand in hand and very clearly so, right? Because leverage is all about what am I going to prioritize? What are things and problems that I'm going to solve that are high leverage for, let's start with us as a company, us as a team, and for me as a PM, right? And taking that lens lends itself automatically to solving the most, let's say, important problems. So, with that said, right, when it sort of comes to the, I would say the head of product or the CPO relationship with the CEO, look, I think it's probably the most important one, especially, you know, I would say it again at any stage, but especially in the early days when so much of it is about just psychological safety, it's about trust, it's about rapport, it's about knowing, you know, when you hand the baton off to each other for different aspects of product building. I think the three things that I'll say that I think have stood me in good stead that I would, I would recommend. One is 
when you come to the job, right, and it doesn't matter what job you're in, what role you're in, with with the mindset of I'm solving for what's best for the company and what's best for the team. I think that makes itself evident in every interaction you have, how you approach problems, I think how you communicate why some problems are more important to work on. And I think is really core to building that trust and rapport, especially with the CEO and especially with the exec team, right? Because it says that you're coming at this from the right place. And so when there's disagreement, it's not personal, it's not ego-driven. It is about how can we push the company forward. So I think that's number one. Yep. And number two, right, is is I think setting clear expectations on who owns what and who drives what, right? So Rich Miranov, who we both know and who's just amazing human, amazing product person. So yeah, we love Rich. Yeah. Taught me this, right? Which is like thinking about it in time horizons, which is, you know, as CPO or as head of product, let's say you own now an early stage because everything's basically weeks, not, you know, years or, or even months sometimes. It's about, okay, what is sort of the time horizon that you own in terms of decision making, in terms of planning, in terms of strategy? And what are things that the CEO owns? What time horizon does the CEO own, right? And I think having clarity on that on both sides helps a great deal because you know where the buck stops, essentially. And you're both informing each other. So that, let's say if you're as a head of product, you know, driving the six month or the 12 month or whatever that looks like at a slightly mature company, the CEO is more the 12 to 24 month sort of horizon. You know that you have to inform each other because how you're thinking about the 12, 24 month, obviously informs six to 12 month strategy and vice versa, right? So I think that's number two. And then number three, right, is I think it, it, it can be hard thinking of the CEO as a point of leverage, right? So I think to, to one of your initial questions. And the reason is, right, most product people I know, myself included, I think when you're early career, especially if you're sort of one of those eager beaver PMs, which I absolutely was, <laughs> right? You think that it's you you have to do everything, right? Like I'm I'm accountable, I'm responsible. I worked for a CPO who again I love and who's one of my mentors, but who sort of really drilled this into me, which is as a PM, you are accountable for everything, right? If there's if something fails, your it's your failure. If something succeeds, it's the team's success. So that's sort of the the oh, mindset. Yeah. Yes, that that's the extreme ownership mindset that I let's say, grew up in, in my product career, right? And again, I think it, it, it's an important one, but I think it's important to recognize its, its boundaries as well, right? Meaning in that mindset, it can often be hard to delegate to other people and especially delegating to your peers and to the exec team and to the CEO. But I think if you start to shift that to say, okay, you know, I, so coming back to this, this idea of like, the, it's not the product person's job to have all the answers or even all the questions sometimes. It's in many ways, right? So again, this is maybe my third description of product in this one conversation, Jason. <laughs> this one is from Adam Grant, who I also love. Yeah. He doesn't say it in the context of product, but I think it's very applicable, which is, you know, it's not important to be the smartest person in the room. It's important to be the wisest person in the room who's able to take all the smart people's thinking and come up with something cohesive and coherent, right? So if you believe that, right, then it becomes really important to say, okay, what are things that the CEO is just naturally really good at? And some CEOs tend to be very technically inclined. Some are sort of very, you know, revenue inclined. And how do you leverage them to drive 
projects forward, to drive strategy forward. And it's taken me a while to get there, to literally be like, hey, can you please go run this? Can you figure this out? And can you back brief me after? It just, it felt so uncomfortable doing it the first time, the first few times. But guess what, right? It's actually, it works beautifully. It get, it frees me up to sort of focus on more high leverage things that I can push forward. And coming back again, coming full circle to building trust and rapport, it creates that level of trust to say, okay, we're both sort of, we're, we're doing this together. You're delegating to me. I'm telling you, I've, things that I need help with. We're both sort of back briefing each other. And again, another full circle, that's what drives the company forward. Absolutely. Some fantastic advice there that hopefully will inspire a few people to have some better relations with their CEOs as well. And where can people find you after this? If they want to hear some more war stories about your time at the sharp end of finance, check out the latest Bollywood gossip, get some advice on their career, or maybe get some deadlifting tips. <laughs> So I'm not very, uh, actually, barely on social media. I think LinkedIn's probably the best place to find me. Just, you know, send me a message and I'm happy to, happy to chat. And, you know, I'll say probably obvious from this conversation, I've had so many people help me so much along the way. So if I can do that for somebody, I, I would be very, very happy to do that. Absolutely. Here, here. Well, I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes and hopefully you'll get a few people heading in your direction to find out more. Well, obviously, that's been a fantastic chat. Really glad we could finally get this one over the line and actually chat after speaking about chatting for so long. Obviously, wish you all the best for the impending arrival. We'll hopefully stay in touch. But as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com Check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.